0: When I announced that I was bringing the 10 things to tell you podcast to a close, the number one question I got in DMs and email and here, there and everywhere, the number one question I got was, but what about the book episodes? Which made me laugh because the book episodes are, of course, one of my favorite things that I do here, but also like, you know, thoughtful and meaningful prompts and things Also, (laughs) anyway, I get it. As a passionate reader, a big time book lover, I totally get it. So, I wanted to share with you a few places that you can still find me talking about books, if that is the number one thing you're going to miss about the weekly 10 things to tell you episodes. So I very often share what I am reading, especially books that I have loved, on my personal Instagram account at Lara.Tremaine. I also on Instagram, on that same account, host regular reading parties. Reading parties are a fun little thing I started in summer 2021 where I pick a designated time, I announce it about 24 hours in advance. I go live on Instagram at the designated time. Tons of people join in with me and we just sit and read together silently. We greet one another. We say where we are. We say what we're reading. And then I set a timer for 20 minutes because I am an evangelist for the 20-minute reading timer. And then there on IG Live, hopefully with some kind of a pretty backdrop like my fish tank, we all sit and read together. So jumping in and participating in both of those things is a way that you can get a book fix from me. I also send out regular reading recommendations and I'm a little bit more candid about what I've been reading, both the good and the bad, in my free newsletter called The Secret Posts. I don't love to put on social media books that I didn't love, But I will share in the secret posts a book that didn't land with me and why for those who are on the secret posts list. That is free. It is sporadic, which is to say I try to send it out monthly. Sometimes it's twice monthly. Sometimes I go three months without putting one out. But it always contains reading recommendations. And you can sign up for the secret posts at 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret posts. But if none of that is scratching your itch for... Book and reading conversations, insights, recommendations, book talk in general. The kind of stuff that we had here on 10 Things to Tell You. I do lead a monthly book club and also just have general book talk over on the Secret Stuff Patreon. The book club part of Secret Stuff is very simple. We read a book together meaning we have like a book assignment and then we have a Zoom meeting once a month on that book. Any Secret Stuff member can jump in on the Zoom, can participate in that conversation. It is recorded and we turn the audio of that Zoom meeting into a podcast episode that Secret Stuff members can listen back to if they weren't able to make it live. A lot of people cannot make the book club meetings live, but they can always still read the book, listen back to the discussion, and then participate in like the conversational threads around the book. So that's the book club element of Secret Stuff. I also do at least one book-related episode over at Secret Stuff that is, like many of the episodes here at 10 Things to Tell You, just me talking about books. I'm either sharing the books I've read that month Again that is a place where I would share the good and the not so great. Sometimes I pop in with some very specific book thing that I want to share. For example, earlier this fall, I really just needed to talk about who is Maud Dixon and float an alternate theory of what I thought was going to happen in that book. It didn't really happen in that book, but I did a little mini episode about that novel and posted it to secret stuff. So there is books and reading content over there monthly besides the actual book club and I wanted to share one of those episodes here as a bonus just so you can kind of hear what it's like. Now listen if you're a regular 10 things to tell you listener you're very accustomed to listening to me be solo and blah blowing on but because I know that You might be hesitant to join a Patreon community if you are unfamiliar with Patreon at all, or if you're unsure of what the content is like over there. I wanted you to have like a prime example of it. I released this episode to the Secret Stuff Patreon members the last week of December, and it is my personal best books of the year list. So a little bit different than the episode I did with my book club back on episode 147, where that was a discussion and we all shared... A couple of picks. This was my final list 10 fiction, 10 nonfiction, my favorite books of the year. This list will also go out to the Secret Post free email subscribers, and this list will also eventually go on social media. But both of those things will just be the actual list. If you want to hear me talk through with my own voice things like this, that's the type of content that will be over at Secret Stuff. I also want to remind you that Secret Stuff is a month-to-month commitment. I don't even offer the option to buy a membership longer than that. So you can always jump in and try, see if it's for you, see if it's not. I totally understand that the membership model is just not going to work for everyone. The Secret Stuff content is much more casual, much less edited. You'll see that as you listen to this bonus. It also just comes out when it comes out. The content schedule over at Secret Stuff is a lot looser than this weekly Tuesday show, so that might be something to get used to. I'm no stranger to making these solo shows, and it's been fun to create some of these personal episodes that are quite a bit less polished than what I publish here on 10 Things to Tell You. But honestly, the real magic of Secret Stuff is in the Zoom meetings, both for book club and for Something I created called Symposium, which is just a Zoom meeting where we gather to discuss a certain topic. There's no homework. There's no prep. It's just Secret Stuff members talking through a topic or a question or something like that. Symposium is also monthly. So I hope this answers some of your questions, especially about where book content, reading content, and recommendations will live after the final episode of 10 Things to Tell You. I'll be providing it free and regularly on social media and in the secret posts, which requires nothing but your email to sign up. And then if you want a deeper dive or if you want to hear my actual, you know, voice in your ears or listen to the broader discussions, then you can join Secret Stuff. And now here is an excerpt from my best books of the year Secret Stuff episode. I hope you enjoy it. But okay, now let's get to the nitty-gritty of this list. And if you're new to Secret Stuff, and I know that there are some new faces around here in the last month, especially. If you are new, maybe you don't know yet that every single month on Secret Stuff, I do at least one, at least one book and reading episode where I share all that I have read lately So in the main show and on social media, I often share the best of what i read lately. And here and in my secret posts, I share everything that I have read. Almost everything. There's a a few exceptions where I just decide, you know, I'm not going to say anything about that ever. (laughs) But in general, I share if I don't like a book or if it was, you know, a three-star read for me, I kind of talk through what I didn't like about it. I do think there's value in that not in a way that's going to show up publicly or tag the author or, you know, be part of a hashtag or anything like that. But just here in this space where we're able to share some of our opinions like that, I will share books that I didn't like and why I didn't like them. But since this episode is best books of the year, let's go ahead and dive in. I separate mine by fiction and non-fiction, that's the only separation I make. I've been seeing some of these other lists this week where people have separated new releases, like 2021 releases, from backlist. I think that's super smart sometimes. I've seen people separate, you know, a memoir genre out of general non-fiction. Depending on how you read and what you read, I can see, of course, that you would categorize your best of, your favorites, in all kinds of different ways. If I listened to a ton of audiobooks, which I don't, I only listen to a few audiobooks a year, I would probably separate those out in some way of like here were the best audiobooks versus here were the best novels, et cetera, et cetera. But for my purposes, because I just don't read all that differently. However, there are a couple of audiobooks on this best of list. But in general, I mostly stick to my Kindle and hard copy. I almost always have a non-fiction going, my morning reading along with a novel that I read in the afternoon and evenings. Like I've just had the same style of reading for a while now. And so I just do two lists, one fiction, one non. And I'm gonna start in my list with fiction. Okay, these are in no particular order actually. Like I said, I don't have super strong feelings about them being in an order. But also these books, as you'll see, they're really pretty different (laughs) from one another. So I didn't even feel the need to like specifically rank them, although I never really do rank them. But these are like truly not in any particular order. I should also mention kind of when I was saying about the um, way that you would categorize these lists, I mix up backlist and new releases. I do not differentiate between those two. First of all I don't read enough of both really. I mean I, I read plenty of both but you know what I mean like statistically percentage wise I don't read enough like backlist for example for it to have its own category. So I mix these up. These are my out of all of my reading lists. These are is my best books of the year. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Ariadne by Jennifer Saint. I read this one recently. I think I read this one in November. And I was hesitant to pick it up. I'm a huge mythology fan. Olympus, Texas, which didn't end up making it on my final list of fiction here. But one of the things I loved about it was its nod to mythology. And I'm not a mythology buff by any means. I can't keep every single ancient storyline straight. I kind of can get confused or whatever. But I just love it i am always enamored with these greek myths and i was hesitant to pick up ariadne because it felt just like a little bit of a knockoff Circe. <laughs> and now i know these are different stories these are different women but it was like a single title name the covers were similar enough with just like the head The woman on the cover. Like, I just I felt like I don't want to ruin my Cersei vibe. I love Madeline Miller. I loved Cersei. I loved Song of Achilles. I will pre-order years in advance whatever she puts out next. I absolutely love those books. And the only reason I ended up going ahead and taking a chance on Ariadne is because someone recommended it and also just my aforementioned love of the genre. I did not know this story. Actually, as it turns out, I knew parts of the story and didn't know that I knew it. But I did not know Ariadne in general, and I definitely didn't know the end. So (laughs) I won't give you any spoilers, even though it's hard to spoil Greek myths. But I was still kind of shocked by some of the things that happened at the end of that book. And I just loved reading it, which is why it ends up here on my top 10. I do not think that it flows as smoothly as... Circe or Song of Achilles. Madeline Miller is an incredible writer and she makes you care about these people in a very unique way. Jennifer Saint, the author of Ariadne, is a great writer, a very solid storyteller. I enjoyed it once I got into it, but I did think it was a little clunky in the beginning and maybe even relied on the reader having some kind of loose knowledge of this story, and I truly didn't. And so I felt like I wasn't quite putting the pieces together at the beginning of this book and not in a way like that's designed where it's all going to come together, but in a way of like, I'm missing out on something a little bit is how I felt at the beginning of this book. But, you know, a quarter in and then for the rest of it, I absolutely enjoyed it and loved it. And it's possible that by nature of me reading it later in the year, it bumps out something more worthy from earlier in the year that has faded a bit from my mind, but it does make it in my top 10 because I want to read more books like this. Like there, are, if there are more books like this, I want to read them. I actually asked for and received for Christmas the three books by Stephen Fry, The Greek Myths Reimagined. There's one called Heroes. There's one called Mythos. And there's one called Troy. I got all three under the Tree this year, and I'm very much looking forward to getting through those. All feeding my deep and abiding love of Greek mythology. Okay, next on my list of best books of the year, this one was a total surprise, <laughs> and it was Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. This book came out last year in 2020, and I got it from Book of the Month app the time that it came out just because I saw people raving about it I liked the cover I didn't know anything about it and nor did I read it last year but it's been sitting on my shelves and I am trying to be a bit better about reading my shelves instead of constantly buying new books and I picked this one up I think I picked it up in August when I came across a list of like fall reads or spooky reads or something and I knew I already owned it and so I decided to give it A chance, again, not knowing anything about it. This book is so great, and I'm so bummed I didn't read it last year. Now, it's a gothic novel, which means it's not realistic. It is set in Mexico. Obviously, the title is Mexican Gothic. It is, you know, outlandish in its storytelling. So like, you know, it's just not realistic. It's gothic. It's like over drama and completely... You know, either in an isolated castle-type estate where no one ever comes and goes. The walls seem to pulse with some sort of mystical something. I mean, it's that kind of book. So if that type of thing is going to be too weird for you, because there's definitely a lot of weirdness in this book, then it won't be for you. I definitely saw some reviews out there that was like, this book is too weird for me. It's not actually that weird. It has some paranormal sort of supernatural elements it has some fantasy elements it has almost like horror it's almost like horror which is adjacent to gothic but as we learned this year with Stephen King Summer right horror doesn't mean what you think it means we're so conditioned to think of horror as being something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre type of thing we think of horror movies which are terrifying and graphic and visual and blood and guts and lots of murder and that doesn't have to be what horror is and Mexican gothic is a great example of that and that it it is definitely scary it was a great October read if you were to read it in that time of year it's spooky but it's not like keep you up at night like there's not like monsters in the way that you think are going to be under your bed or it's not like the nothing man which is one of the scariest books I read this year is not going to be on this top list, although I really enjoyed it and it's a great book. It also kept me up at night. It was the kind of book you don't want to read if you're home alone. Mexican Gothic by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia is not like that at all. This is almost like a ghost story. That's the best way to describe it. Gothic novels are like grown-up ghost stories. And so I was just utterly surprised by this book, you know, not knowing anything about it. I loved it. It was one of my five-star reads of the summer. I did read A big chunk of five-star reads this summer. A lot of the books I'm going to talk about today was in that chunk of time this year, including Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. Also read this summer, also on this list, and I'm so excited for it to be on this list, is Billy Summers by Stephen King. Now, I read Billy Summers when it came out in August, which was the tail end of our Stephen King summer. Stephen King summer is what I launched secret stuff on the idea of. I really wanted to do a Stephen King book club for people who needed to be introduced to Stephen King, like in a way where we could talk about it as a book club. And as it so happens, because Stephen King is so prolific, he actually had this book come out in August this summer called Billy Summers. So I loved all the theme that was happening here. Stephen King Summer, Billy Summers, the literal summer. I loved it. Billy Summers was not part of my Stephen King Summer. So I read a lot of Stephen King this year. In fact, my very favorite book of the year was Stephen King. But we'll get to that sort of later. But Billy Summers is a book that you could read if you had never read Stephen King before. Now, do I think it's classic Stephen King? No, this is not in like the top 20 probably of Stephen King novels. But it is not horror. It is not scary at all. It is a little thrillery. It's about an assassin. Billy Summers is an assassin. That is not a spoiler. And there's some violence at the end, or it's sort of like the, culmination of the plot, if you will, there is some violence. But this book isn't what you think of when you think of Stephen King. This is falling into kind of the cop stuff that he has been doing over the last several years. It's like a crime book. You know, there's some mafia mob type elements. There's some romance. There's some shootouts. You know, it's like that kind of a book. But it is Stephen King's amazing character building and storytelling and so I did not find the plot of Billy Summers to be all that wow inducing although there were some certainly some interesting elements to it but Stephen King does in this book what he does best which is make you care about people who are very flawed and he really makes you want to know what happens to them which is plot sure But for me, with Stephen King, it's like deeper than that. It's almost like you know these people. They're your friends. And you don't think about your friends' lives as plot, do you, right? It's not so obvious as it is in other novels. With books like Billy Summers, you're like, I have to know what's happening with these people I know. And are they going to get out of this sticky situation? (laughs) It's like that. I just had a delightful time reading Billy Summers. I've had a wonderful time hearing from lots of friends who, for whatever reason, that I'm not quite sure of, read Billy Summers when they weren't necessarily Stephen King readers. I mean, maybe because it was like a bestseller, it got a lot of buzz or something, I'm not sure. But I feel like I had a handful of people who read Billy Summers as one of their first or one of their first few Stephen King novels and were just shocked and surprised at how good it was. And I'm like, see, that's what I'm trying to tell you. And then when they say that to me, I'm also like, it's also not even in his best. Like it's a great solid book. It's obviously on my top 10 of the year, but like if you enjoyed this, you gotta get deeper into Stephen King. And if you want to get deeper into Stephen King, of course, hold tight because we are doing our second Stephen King summer starting in May of 2022. Okay, my next pick is also from The Summer and was another surprise for me. I again, sort of like Mexican Gothic, although these books are so radically different. But I didn't know what to expect. I think I was looking for a palate cleanser. I might have picked this up on Kindle sale. <laughs> I don't even remember who recommended it, but I tend to reach for these type of books after i finish finished something heavy, or if I just, you know, just want some kind of easier weekend read, or if I'm in the mood to, you know, plow through a book in a day or two because I'm trying to distract myself from something, (laughs) anything like that, I will often reach for like a thriller or a mystery because it is so entertaining, right? It just keeps you so engaged. That is why I reached for this one and then it turned out to be so much better than I was expecting, so much better than the cover might suggest or than anyone was really saying. I'd heard some buzz around it, but not much. The book is Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. I think I bought it for the premise alone, which is, and this happens at the very beginning, so it's not a spoiler or anything, but a young girl in New York City publishing, like almost an intern level in the publishing world, loses her job and through a series of events, gets the opportunity to go be a personal assistant to a very, very famous recluse, secretive author who writes her novels under a pen name. She lives way out in the country in a tiny, small town, but she needs help with her next project. And so our main character, Florence, gets hired to come be her assistant. And it, from the beginning, seems like a dream job, right? Doesn't that sound like it would be somewhat of a dream job? As you can imagine, because this is a thriller, mystery, hijinks type of novel with a lot more action than I was anticipating, actually, a lot of craziness happens. In this book, one of the reasons that it lands on this list, it's not because it was entertaining. A lot of thrillers and mysteries and things are super fun to read page turners are so you know fun for the brain. This was more than that though because this novel did not go at all where I was expecting it to go (laughs) and not necessarily in a plot twist although there were some different plot twists as is common in this genre. It was more than that. It was more like the whole trajectory of the thing. Like I thought I had a grasp on kind of where we were going and what the actual central mystery was going to be. And then we would take a right turn. And I just so enjoyed being surprised by this book and not surprised in a cheesy way, not surprised in like a, well, that was out of left field way. Even though it was so surprising, it really worked. And it was sort of asking some bigger, deeper kind of thematic questions that even though it was like sort of a A playful book in a certain sense, I did feel like had some good thoughts about identity and art and making good decisions and who we want to be in life kind of thing. And so I just was super surprised by this. And if you're catching the theme, I guess being surprised by a book is an important element for me, which I don't know if that's always true or if it's just in this wonky, weird year. But reading a lot, or whatever it is that we do, if you like to binge TV shows or movies or, like me, read, you get pretty used to sort of what a lot of the trends are, the plot twists, the structure. These change over time, but you can really get used to what a lot of books are sort of doing at one time based on culture, taste, or whatever. And so when something really surprises you, especially when it has been sort of, position to be like a hundred other other books just like it, then it really does set that piece apart. And so that is how I felt about Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. It ticked a lot of boxes for me and clearly that was a rarity in 2021. Okay, the next one I have talked about a lot already. It is definitely a contender for the best book of the year for me in terms of I enjoyed it and it was very well done. And it surprised me and all of these different, you know, (laughs) requirements for a best book. But it has been hard to recommend because of the sheer violence. And obviously I am not a sensitive reader and this book took me a few steps back. That is Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby. Apparently, a lot of people liked S.A. Cosby's book last year, or maybe the year before. And so to them, this was a very anticipated book, Razorblade Tears. It's a standalone. I don't mean that it was a sequel or anything. It's just that people felt very passionately about his last book. And so that made an extra amount of sense why this book was just everywhere this summer and is on a ton of end of year lists that I've been seeing. It also is doing a lot of things I think that are important and that really matters And that's another element for me of choosing the books that made a difference to me this year that became my favorites is if they are addressing something culturally that I think really matters. And Razorblade Tears, while violent, 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 like in a very cinematic way. I cannot wait for this to be a movie. I don't know if I'll watch it, but it just reads like, you know, a total movie. But the general premise is these two men who do not know one another – one is black, one is white. Their sons were married to each other. So their sons were a gay couple. The two fathers had complicated relationships with their sons and so they did not know one another. The men who are married, the two young men who are grown-ups, they're adults, they are murdered. And so the two fathers set off to seek revenge and they sort of team up to seek revenge. So this is kind of a buddy book. There are some important female characters in this book but this is pretty male-driven. But there's just a lot happening with race, with socioeconomic things, with the men being married, with father-son relationships. There was a lot of culture (laughs) packed into this violent novel. And there was just a lot of relationship stuff in general, sort of within the culture stuff. And I like a relationship book that's not a love story, I love a relationship book that's not a love story. I love looking at friendships, parent-child, our own relationships to our past, our own relationships to our community. There's all of that is happening in Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby. And when I sat down to make this list, it was like probably the first gimme that I put on here. It was the most obvious one. So I would say it's probably among my very tip top of the year. It's just really, really good. Next on the list for fiction is The Paper Palace by Miranda Callie Heller. This book was not obviously on my list when I first made it. It was one that might have hovered a little on the edges, though I think I might be in the minority of that opinion because I have seen this. It feels like this is on everyone's best of list, but I definitely did not enjoy this book while I was reading it. I didn't like any of the characters and I don't need a likable character. I will, in fact, with the type of books I like, find myself rooting for a despicable character. I am okay with an anti-hero, but The Paper Palace, it is, it is worse than that in terms of I'm not rooting or liking or understanding really any of this. Until as you get on into the book and you realize as the onion layers are peeled back, you realize why some of these characters are the way they are. And then, of course, that breeds compassion and some understanding. And I still was hesitant on this book almost until the very end. But here's why it lands on this list. I have thought about it for months. I have thought about the whole way that Callie Heller unfolds. This story from the very beginning until the ending, which has been, I guess, somewhat confusing or disputed, I guess, of of what happened at the end. It's sort of been a big conversation because some people read it as a little bit ambiguous. Some people thought it was an obvious ending. So that alone, you know, made it kind of worth this bigger conversation. But for me, it really says something about a book, a story, characters, a plot, if I'm still thinking about it months later. Like if it didn't just run through me like water and I, you know, forgot even who the characters were by the next week or something like that, which we all read books like that. But The Paper Palace, and I don't want to say too much about it because it's a complicated plot, I guess, and it has numerous trigger warnings, I suppose I should say. It is not for sensitive readers, not for the violence that is depicted in Razorblade Tears, but for abuse and Death and uh, lots of reasons that this book is also not for a sensitive reader. And it's also not easy to sum up, really. But this book was purposely deceptive in all the ways, like from the watercolor cover, which doesn't totally match the contents on the pages, to how the characters and their various relationships are sort of forced on you and they sort of grow on you. It was masterfully done, really. And so thinking about it all these months later, ended up with a spot on my 10 Best Fiction of the Year. Again, that was The Paper Palace by Miranda Callie Heller. Okay, for the next choice on my 10 Best Fiction, I am breaking one of my personal rules. I don't do this very often. I do it when I feel like it's worth it. And that is I, for the most part, when I'm making lists like this, do not include friends books because it just gets too hard. I've been doing this online work for a really long time and I have a lot of friends who publish all kinds of books, especially non-fiction. And that's where I feel like this allowed me a little bit of an excuse to bend this rule. But I love all of my friends books. I am, you know, so honored to have so many friends that put great things into the world, but I'm also just not objective about them. Like I'm not objective about my friend's books even a little bit. So that that makes including them on these lists unfair for a lot of reasons. So unless there is an exception, that is one of the things that I try to separate out when I'm like thinking of a best of type of compilation. I broke my own rule with The Weight of Memory by Sean Smucker. I've known Sean for a really long time. He was a guest on the show this summer. Back in July, episode 126, I recorded a conversation with Sean called Books We Wish We'd Written, where we talk about books we wish we'd written, but we also talk about self-publishing, which he did for a long time, and sort of what that means these days, because it's changed so much in the publishing industry. If you're interested at all in writing a book in the future, I think you should go back and listen to that episode because he has some wonderful wisdom there. And then of course we also talk about his new book that came out this summer called The Weight of Memory. I took this book with me on a little introvert weekend while my kids were at summer camp. There was a bunch of construction happening at my house. I needed to get out of Dodge for like 48 hours. I went to a hotel. I had a stack of books with me including The Weight of Memory and I just could not put it down. I loved this book. I completely forgot as I was reading it that my friend had written it. And so I was able, that's the excuse I'm giving, that I was able to like separate out my enjoyment of it from my friendship with Sean. And I just hadn't read anything quite like this. He said he wanted to write a grown-up fairy tale. That's how he described it. And that is what this is. But it's not cheesy. It's not... Anything like that, when you hear the word fairy tale, it is a story about a man who receives a terminal diagnosis. He is dying. He is the sole caregiver for his granddaughter, and he takes her back to his hometown, his very tiny hometown that he hasn't been back to in a long time, as both a means of saying goodbye as he is dying and also like sort of looking for a future for his granddaughter where he can leave her in the care of... People who knew him when, possibly. There was just a lot that I loved about this book. I always love a return to a hometown because that's sort of my own life in many ways. And there's a ghost paranormal. That's where the sort of fairy tale element comes in, I guess. There is something happening supernatural in this book throughout, but you aren't quite sure what. And it gets a little intense, but it's also beautiful. Like there's just, I just loved this book. And on theme, It surprised me and it absolutely earned a spot on this list, even breaking my own personal list rules. The title of the book is The Weight of Memory by Sean Smucker. Okay, next on the list. This is the oldest book on the list of these 10, at least. And I read this one as part of my deal with myself at the beginning of 2021. I didn't stick to it very well, but one of the goals that I really wanted was to read backlist titles from some of my favorite authors. I had really hoped in this last year to get less distracted by the next new shiny special thing and instead really sort of dig in on authors I already knew I loved and reading their earlier work or maybe reading things similar to that instead of just being like just so all over the place like I usually am. So this was part of that project and it did not disappoint. It is also one of my favorite books of the year, not just in this top list, but it's, you know, in the top three, probably of this whole list. That is Amy and Isabel by Elizabeth Strout. I love Elizabeth Strout. She is one of my very favorite authors right now, which is interesting because she had a new book out in 2021 called Oh, William that I enjoyed, totally enjoyed. I'll read anything that she likes, but it didn't even quite make the top 10. However, Amy and Isabel, which is her first book that came out in 1997, I think, this book blew me away. Amy and Isabel are mother and daughter. That's the relationship between the title characters. And this book is sad and hard and beautiful and uncomfortable. And it's just an amazing book. There is one scene, and I don't normally do this because I don't cater to sensitive readers. I think if you're a super sensitive reader, you will not even remotely align with my taste in books. And so while I don't mind giving the occasional trigger warning and just regular warning, like for Razorblade Tears, for example, or Paper Palace, which had some abuse, I don't like generally call out very specific scenes or anything to anyone when I'm reviewing a book. There is one scene, though, that does deserve a lot of pause in Amy and Isabel. It is an abuse scene, sexual abuse, and it is going to be very, very uncomfortable for some people, so much so that I'm obviously mentioning it. Besides that, this book is, Elizabeth Stroud is a genius. She really is. I don't use that word lightly. I really think that about her. I love her books. I will read them all day, and I'm so glad that I forced myself to go back and read this one, Amy and Isabel by Elizabeth Stroud. Okay, number nine and ten on this list, the last two books of my best books of the year. I'm laughing because if you listen to the main show episode, I said this a couple times and I absolutely meant it, and I'm going to say it again. I didn't even really like these books, okay? (laughs) I didn't. But they are doing something interesting. They're very well written. I couldn't stop thinking about them. And so as we're evaluating best books of the year, here they land. The first one is Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan, which which I'm laughing that I've talked about this book all year on various podcast episodes. And I say the same thing every time that I didn't even really like this book, except obviously I did, or I wouldn't stop talking about it. There is something about it. It is similar in tone or hmm, tone isn't the right word. There are some similarities to this book, Good Neighbors, to last year's book, Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. So if you like that kind of style of writing where there, it's like slightly apocalyptic, but not totally. There's some futuristic elements (laughs) that feel current and relevant, but there's also this whole other thing sort of happening that, you know, it's not exactly the current world. If you sort of like that as the backdrop of a novel, if you enjoyed that and leave the world behind, then you will probably like Good Neighbors. It's also just weird. It feels like a movie I would have loved in like the late 90s, early 2000s, like where there's a lot of weird, quirky, dark characters and they fit together like a poem, but they're also a little bit disjointed. That's what this book is. And I have not been good at selling this book (laughs) all year long as I've talked about it. But I've talked about it enough that it lands on this list. Lastly, on best books of the year, uh, books I didn't like, (laughs) is The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. Okay, I did like this book. I actually did like this book a lot. But I was in sort of a weird mood. It's very dark. It has some very disturbing parts to this book. This is a book about slavery. There is clearly some abuse and very difficult things happening in this book. And if I had read it at a different time, I might have been able to take it in differently. But as it was, this is a hard book to read a little bit. It is hard to read. The writing is amazing. There are some parts of it that are a little bit hard to follow. And often, if I'm finding something hard to follow, I usually blame it on myself, like I'm reading it on the Kindle so I can't really go back and look at something, a structure, a character or anything because that's hard to do on the Kindle. But I read this book in hard copy and so I could see on the page a little bit of what was happening with the structure and I do think there's some things about it that are a little bit confusing. There's like flashbacks, there's some time jumping and these characters are very complicated. There's also some... Uh, spiritual elements to it that are almost a little bit confusing because you can't totally separate what's real and what's of the spirit world, if you will. A little bit like Sing Unburied Sing, which that's one of my favorite books of all time by Jasmine Ward. I absolutely loved that book. I read it when it came out a few years ago. I think that was 2018 and loved it, loved it, loved it. There were just some slight similarities I felt like in The Prophets and that's probably... Maybe even one of the reasons that I loved it so much was because of some of those similarities. And this might be the most well-written book I read this year. And so that is why it falls under the category of best, but not necessarily favorite. It is hard to read books like this about things like slavery, about things like abuse, you know, time periods in history that are very difficult to read sometimes and like proclaim how much you enjoy them. And of course, you know you know what we all mean when we say we enjoy a book that is about a really hard thing. It's not that you were taking glee over the hard thing. It's that you were enjoying the experience of the writing. You were learning something. You were immersed in a world. Like, of course, we all sort of understand what that means. But this book in particular, it's, it's darkness. It's hard to be like, I loved this. You know what I mean? It is really, it's difficult. But again, one of the best written things I read this year, if not the best written thing I read this year, was The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. Okay, before we get to my nonfiction list, I do want to say one thing. (laughs) I left the actual very best book I read this year. It is not in this top 10. I know that's confusing. Let me explain why. It is because it was a reread for me, which feels different on a list like this. And also, it was part of Stephen King's summer here, launching Secret Stuff. And that also felt like a little bit weird to include it on this list. Same reasons I didn't put Little Women by Louisa May Alcott on this list, even though it was for sure one of the best things I read this year. I'm so glad I invested the time to read that classic. And you can listen to our whole conversation about Little Women, if you scroll back and listen to our November Secret Stuff Book Club meeting, that's where we recorded an amazing conversation about that book and where I reveal that even though it is totally outside of my wheelhouse, it was a five-star book for me, but it doesn't land on my 10 best books of the year because it's Little Women. You no, know, it's like a classic. It. I'm not going to give it a spot here. It's not going to be a recommendation for someone to see and read. So sort of the same reason that my actual favorite book of the year isn't on this list and it was Misery by Stephen King. We read Misery as our last choice for Stephen King Book Club. I had read it a long time ago, like when I was like a child or teenager, so I didn't remember much about it. And it was hard for me to separate what we know in pop culture about Misery the movie starring Kathy Bates, like sort of that iconic character and some of the scenes and everything like that I was a little bit worried to return to the book but I did think it would make an excellent pick for Stephen King Summer because it is not scary or so I thought it's not scary in a supernatural way there are not monsters or ghosts or paranormal or anything like that it is technically you know realistic fiction this book Misery is so good (laughs) Whatever you think you know about the movie, we watched the movie together as part of Stephen King Book Club. It, it does not even hold a candle to how good this book is. This book is so good. It is also terrifying. Not terrifying because you think a ghost is going to come out of the closet or something, but terrifying in that Annie Wilkes is the scariest character maybe I've ever read. She is terrifying. And I cannot believe, I did not remember from reading this 20 plus years ago, how good this book was, and it is, I can't rave about it enough. It is so good. In fact, even though it's not on the official list, it was the best book of the year for me. I'm so glad we read it. It blew everything else out of the water. And you know, long live Stephen King and all of that. Okay, let's get to nonfiction. I love novels, but nonfiction, I I just have such a special place in my heart for nonfiction books. I read all kinds of nonfiction. Like across all the genres of nonfiction. And so these are kind of all over the place, but absolutely worth talking through. The first one is What Kind of Woman by Kate Bear. This is a book of poems. I've said for years that I don't do poetry. It's like almost like an identity thing, like a knee-jerk thing of like, yeah, I don't do poetry. But how dumb am I to say that? Because I have read some poetry in the last couple of years, even while saying I don't read poetry. I have read poetry that has like moved my whole soul. And so I really just need to drop this identity idea I have that I am not a poetry reader because clearly I am. And What Kind of Woman by Kate Bear? I found Kate Bear on Instagram. I know she's been around for a long time. I'm sorry I'm late to her party. But I found her when she was posting these poems Primarily she was taking, this is how I found her, but this is not what what kind of woman is, but she was taking kind of hate mail she was getting, hate email or hate DMs or hate comments, and she was blacking out certain words so that it would make a poem almost in refute of what the original message was. I thought it was so creative and funny and like the ultimate clapback. So I started following her there and then realized that she writes... Poetry that is not that blackout word poetry. And I bought her book right away. Like I'd only been following her for, I don't know, not very long. It was the first book I read in 2021. And not being a educated poetry reader, I don't always understand what I'm reading. I don't always understand what poetry is doing. I definitely could get more up to speed on that. But I loved this book. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me want to be a better writer. These small poems made me want to write a million words, which I think that's a powerful, powerful endorsement. And I'm just grateful for people like Kate Bear who are putting things like this out into the world. Her book of poetry, I actually, I actually bought two of her books this year. This one that I'm recommending that's officially on the list is called What Kind of Woman? And then I also bought a smaller book that she just put out in the last couple of months that is a collection of those books uh, blackout poems that I was describing, and it's called "I Hope This Finds You Well." Both excellent. Okay, next nonfiction top ten, "Dirt" by Mary Morantz. Mary Morantz is a fellow podcaster. She was a professional photographer, very successful for a while. She released "Dirt" back in 2020, and I think I just I missed that release. I I don't know what happened, but we ended up doing a podcast swap. When 10 Things to Tell You came out, I was a guest on her show and I was on her podcast first and we had such a great conversation. I just really connected with her. I really, really loved chatting with her. So right after that, I picked up her book right away because she had made a comment, I think, in our conversation that we were a little bit of like kindred spirits. And Because I had not read her book yet when I was on her show, I didn't, you know, totally know what she meant by that until I read her book. After my appearance there, but before I had the chance to have her on my show yet. And I loved it. I listened to it on audio. This is the first of a few books that I listened to this year. You know, I only do nonfiction on audio. So I listened to Mary read her memoir herself. It's called Dirt. And I was so riveted. And from the first chapter, I understood what she meant about us being kindred spirits. (laughs) Even though we have a very different story She grew up in a trailer in West Virginia and ended up graduating from Yale Law School. I, that's not any part of my story, but just so much of what she wrote about in her childhood and some of her relationships. And even though it didn't match my exact story, I knew exactly what she was writing. I grew up in a town similar to what she was describing. Like I just, something about her writing, I connected to it so much and I understood what she meant. By calling us kindred spirits. And I went on to have her on 10 Things to Tell You. Had a great conversation there too. And I feel like I just shouted it from the rooftops. For like a month how much I loved this book. And I wanted people to read it. This book is so, so well written. So well told. If you think you have read memoirs like this. And Mary and I talk about this on the 10 Things to Tell You episode. If you think, yeah, yeah. I've read the like poor kid goes to Ivy League story. I got it. This is isn't like that. It doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like a story you've read a hundred times. It doesn't feel like it's steeped in cliche at all. In fact, I just came away from that feeling like, I think, you know, I want to read more about Mary. I want to know what's happening next in her life, which lucky for us, she's putting out a new book. But the book that is on my top 10 nonfiction list is Dirt by Mary Morantz. The next book on my list I also listened to which is, again, super unusual. But the next two, in fact, that I'm going to share with you, I listened to. So there's three on this list that I did audio. And this next one is Breath by James Nestor. I gave a ton of minutes to talking about this book on the Best Books of the Year episode with Book Club, episode 147. So I won't repeat myself here, but I just want to say that this book is on the list because it made me think constantly I thought constantly since I read it about the way I breathe. And not just the way that I breathe, although that really matters to really take in breaths through your nose instead of your mouth. And he explains all the different reasons why that matters, both when you're exercising, when you're speaking, when you're sick, when you're sleeping, all of these things, so important. But also because he does a really great job of explaining the history of why this matters. I would not have ever thought that a book like this on breath that we'd Get a history lesson out of it. But it actually really does matter how evolution, how our skulls have changed, how our nasal passages have changed, and eating soft food and all of these ways that evolution has changed the shape of our skull, changed us in so many ways, affects, you know, disease, asthma, allergies, like a lot of different things that your breath corresponds to. The way that I learn things... That made more of a difference to me when I was learning about breathing in this book than, you know, some of the other stuff that was super interesting but wouldn't necessarily stick with me, like about athletes breathing when they run marathons or athletes breathing when they swim or whatever, which is actually like super cool information to bring up at like a dinner party because, you know, it is interesting. But in terms of like me really noticing how my breath is going to change and how I need to concentrate on it. It was all that history piece. It, it made me feel like part of a bigger story and how we're all changing the way we breathe and how we need to be more aware of it. I love that book. I did listen to it on audio, went by very quickly. It's called Breath by James Nestor. Okay, last audio book in this list. Third audiobook I'm going to tell you about, fourth on my list total, is The Meaning of Mariah Carey by Mariah Carey. Now, here's why I think you should listen to this one, whether or not you're that into audiobooks or not. I do love to listen to memoir on audio, especially if the author reads it, just because I think that just gives it a whole new depth to hearing someone's story, is to hearing it in their own actual voice. But Mariah Carey is a voice that we know. And so she reads it herself, but she also sings. And I mean, it is, what a joyous experience it is to listen to a life story and then have a few bars of song. It just was so enjoyable to me. Now, if you're into celebrity memoir and you want some kind of like juicy tell-all, this is not that. I mean, there is a lot of vulnerable stuff in this book, especially about her childhood, about her relationship with her siblings and her mom. It's difficult for sure, but it is not especially about her marriages and the people that she's dated and those things. If It's not like a celebrity gossipy, you know, TMZ style memoir. It's not that. It's better than that, actually. But if that's going to, you know, make you feel bored or bummed or like not what you signed up for, then this isn't the book for you. But talking a lot about her childhood... About the color of her skin and how that played into a lot of things in her life, and about the music business. There was quite a bit of music business stuff in there, which I thought was especially interesting. I am not a Mariah Carey fan, one way or the other. I mean, I'm not anti Mariah Carey. I felt neutral about Mariah Carey. I do love some of her songs because they were like, you know, very popular when I was a teenager and younger. But I went into this because somebody recommended it, like, not because I was a big fan or anything. And I just had a great time listening to it. I listened to it while I was doing some home projects, some cleaning or organizing or something, and it just made the time fly by. And so that is why it has landed on this top list of nonfiction. Again, it's called The Meaning of Mariah Carey by Mariah Carey. Okay, number five on this nonfiction list will be familiar if you've been in Secret Stuff for several months, because we read it for Secret Stuff fall nonfiction. Which, yes, I said I wouldn't maybe normally choose what we read for Secret Stuff to be on my best books of the year. But this one is different because I read it this summer. I read it separately and then chose it to be something we all read together a few months later. So it's sort of different. It was already my favorite before I chose it. And that is The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. I love this book. (laughs) And if you go back and you listen to our book club meeting about this book in October, I think, or September When we read this together in Secret Stuff, you will see, in fact, that not everybody loved this book. There was some mixed reaction to The Art of Gathering, but I loved it and I genuinely think that it is something I will think about or there were parts of it that taught me about gathering and I love to host people in my home, on Zoom, on an IG Live even. Like I love to host people and I feel like I learned that from this book. I mean, I didn't learn that I love it, but I learned how to do it better in the art of gathering. There's a lot of examples in this book that, you know, don't seem particularly relevant to our everyday lives, you know, like business conferences or like big international white parties or whatever. Like that's not something that you and I are going to host necessarily. But learning about what makes certain gatherings magical or memorable or a total flop it was really helpful to me. It isn't like all Martha Stewarty. I like Martha Stewart. But, you know, it isn't all like have the flowers just so and, you know, make your own homemade whatever. It isn't about that. It's more about like the tone that you're setting, the structure that you're giving to your party. One of the reasons that some people didn't connect to this type of book is because they don't want structure to their party. They don't want to think about it like that. A gathering should have a certain looseness to it. And I understand that, that Priya Parker Imposes some real rules <laughs> on her gatherings that make some people feel like very suffocated by. But for me, I love a rule and I loved thinking about it the way Priya Parker was presenting it. That the best gatherings, most of the time, do have an underlying structure that someone is pulling off, even if you don't know it. It's like putting all the makeup on to look like you're makeup free. That is the example of some of the best gatherings that you've ever been to. They seem seamless, flawless, like they flowed and they were loose. Someone somewhere was probably making that looseness happen. It wasn't just an accident. So I learned a lot from this book. I think I would give this book as a gift if it felt appropriate. It has a good cover. It has a great message about how gathering is so important to us. So it was for sure going to land on this list at the end of the year. Again, it's called The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker. Number six is an older book. The Art of Gathering was also a few years old, Radical Candor. This next book is also a few years old. It is by Kim Scott called Radical Candor. And I think the subtitle is like, How to Be a Kick-Ass Boss or something like that, which I was recommended. This book was recommended to me by Kendra Adachi, the lazy genius. And I was like, you know... I don't really see myself as a kick-ass boss or maybe even as a boss in general. But as I am growing my team that helped me with all of these projects, including secret stuff and all the things, it did really help me. It would help anyone, even if you're a boss or not, but it would help anyone in any kind of a leadership position. So even if it's a leadership, a volunteer leadership position, like in your community, in your church even just some of the things that we have to kind of manage even within our own home and family management, if you will. I thought that Radical Candor had so many good tips and so many examples of her making mistakes. And they were common mistakes. And they were like really relatable mistakes. I mean, even though Kim Scott has worked at like Apple and Google and all these places that the rest of us don't work, these like high-level, high-stress, high-quality corporations – I really liked how she over and over again showed how she got something wrong. And it wasn't like ridiculous. It was like, oh yeah, I might've gotten that wrong too. Like I didn't fire this person when I should have, or I didn't have the conversation that I needed to have. And so therefore this, that, and the other thing happened. I ignored this thing in a meeting. And instead of feeling like, because of her position, like, so I will never understand what she's talking about. It was the opposite. It felt so universal. It felt so helpful. I thought that this would make a great book to someone who is maybe newly a boss or wants to be a boss, or I guess someone who has been one for a long time, but maybe like could use some kind of refresher. I don't know. I really liked what I learned in that book and I have not picked it up yet, but apparently she has a new book out. And I liked Radical Candor so much that I think I will pick up the next one. Again, it's called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Next, we have The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner. This is a book, if you're listening to this, this is a book that we should probably all read. It is Lightbulb moment after light bulb moment. Now, apparently this book, The Dance of Anger, is kind of considered to be Harriet Lerner's opus. Maybe opus is too strong of a word, but it's definitely her most famous book, her most well-read book. I think it's sold millions of pop- copies and stuff like that. I read it because I first read last year, The Dance of Connection by Harriet Lerner. And I loved it so much. It was in my top list last year that I felt like, oh, I need to go read like her most well-known work, which was The Dance of Anger. And while it didn't have the warm and fuzzies (laughs) that The Dance of Connection had, I will say it taught me a lot. The Dance of Anger taught me a lot. It taught me a couple of things that I have referenced to my husband multiple times since then. One is the concept of triangulation, which I'd heard before, but she gives such clear examples about like this particular relationship dynamic and how it can be manipulative and deceptive and how even well-meaning people can like mess this up. The other concept that has been the most useful to me and at least in my own marriage is when she writes about how in a partnership when one person is an over- emotional person and the other partner is an under-emotional person, that what ends up happening then is that the over-emotional person sort of takes on, takes the burden from the under-emotional person. In every scenario, the over-emotional person feels angry on their behalf, feels sad. It sort of takes the burden from the under-emoter to ever have to feel anything because their partner is mad on your behalf. And there's definitely an element of that in my marriage where I overfeel things and and Jeff probably often underfeels things. And when something happens in our life that is, let's say, sad, I feel all the sad, I cry, I talk about it a lot. Like I carry the sad for the both of us and then he doesn't have to really feel his feelings. Even though he's sad too, he sort of lets me carry all the sad, and then he doesn't have to feel it. I didn't explain that well. I promise she explains it better in the book. And it has come up time and time again that if you can balance that out, if I can resist from overreacting, taking away some emotion that's really his to carry. If something has happened that makes us sad, he needs to feel his own sadness. Or if something happens that is angering, but it's really kind of his deal, me, instead of getting all defensive for him and like, popping off about it to other people or whatever. Let him be the one who's mad about it. Make him feel the feelings instead of, as the over-motor, consider myself representing our feelings together. Because it's a bad habit for me. It's a bad habit for him. There were other aha moments in the book, but those are two of the big ones for me. If any of that sounds interesting to you, these books by Harriet Lerner, The Dance of Connection, and then this one that I'm describing that's on the list, The Dance of Anger, they're not that long. I mean, you can't blaze through them because you're really taking in sort of a lot of information, but they're approachable. They're not like psychobabble, hard to understand, medical knowledge. Like they're very, very approachable and readable. And I thought she used good examples in both books. So that was The Dance of Anger by Harriet Lerner. Number eight on my nonfiction list is The Color of Water by James McBride. This is also, like Amy and Isabel by Elizabeth Strout in the fiction list, this is also a book that I purposely bought after loving James McBride's book, Deacon King Kong. Last year, that was one of my favorite books of the year. And in my quest to read more backlist titles by authors I already love, a lot of people, a lot of people who hadn't read any other McBride recommended The Color of Water. This was a memoir that I somehow was just not on my radar because when it came out, when it was popular, it was on the New York Times bestseller list for two years. I don't know what I was doing. Was I sleeping? I have no idea. Because this book was not on my radar. I don't even remember having heard of it. But so many people told me that it was one of their favorite memoirs of all time and that they hadn't read anything else James McBride. So I bought it, super excited to read this memoir of of James McBride who wrote this book about his mom who is a white woman who was Jewish who he did not know much about even though she raised him and his like 14 other siblings 12 other siblings she raised them but he didn't know much about her background he didn't know much about who she was on a deep level until he started writing this book having these conversations with her going back to where she grew up And he ends up writing this just fascinating and beautiful book that I didn't want to put down. I didn't want to end. Definitely a memoir that I will remember for a long time. It's so much about motherhood, identity, mother-son relationships, church and God, because she grew up Jewish, although he didn't know that for a long time, and converted to Christianity, started a church. So there's a lot in there about that. Like this is not a super thick memoir. It's not a super long memoir, but there is so much in this book that I really loved. You will remember these people forever. It is so, so beautiful. It's called The Color of Water by James McBride. Number nine. Oh, I totally lied to you earlier because I listened to this one too. So that means four, almost 50% of my nonfiction best of list I listened to. This is unheard of y'all. I, only, this is, I' these might have been the only four books I listened to all year. <laughs> I do not do very many audiobooks, but maybe I either need to do more or I'm just really good at picking them. Number nine on the best nonfiction of the year list for me is Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen cobas Dumez. Here's the knock about listening to this one. I do not recommend listening to this one. The narrator is so robotic. It sounds like Siri is reading this book to you or Alexa or whoever. It does not even sound like a person is reading it. I had it on a couple of times in the car and my kids were like, what even is this? And they are very used to me having voices on in the car, podcasts primarily. So it's not like they weren't used to that, but they were like, this sounds like a robot. And it does. So much so that it took me like four months or something to get all the way through this book. I did... Like the content, I did learn a lot listening to Jesus and John Wayne. There was a lot of religious and political history in this book that I kind of sort of maybe loosely knew, but I hadn't tied all the knots together enough to totally know, especially because I grew up in a super, super conservative, very pro-Reagan And there's a lot of Reagan ties to John Wayne and sort of that mentality, that show of toughness and manhood and America and all of that. Like I grew up with that as being very much the highest political standard, but I hadn't made all these other connections to how this was also happening in the church. My parents were not religious. And so for me, not all of these dots were totally connected, both the cultural part, the sort of cowboy view of America and also these different versions of Jesus. A gentle Jesus versus a cowboy type Jesus. I had not made all these connections on my own or not consciously and so there were things in here that I definitely learned. Now there were a couple of points I will say especially towards the end because I grew up so conservative. I do know that world so well that I felt like and it's totally hard to judge tone maybe because again robotic narration but I felt like we're a little bit condescending not throughout the book at all but there were just a couple of things that I felt like blurred the edges of journalism or commentary into a little bit of a condescension. I didn't love that but again I also can't 100% separate from this listening tone and my maybe my own sensitivities or not. It does feel Like, I want to mention that here because I haven't talked about this book anywhere else yet. I just finished it in the last week. And so even though it did end up on my best of nonfiction, because I learned so much and what I learned really helped me grasp some things. Like, it really educated me in some ways, which is definitely a criteria for me choosing, you know, a best book of the year. I just couldn't, you know, give it that review without sort of mentioning that there was a a couple of points that I felt like... I don't know, got my back up a little bit over some of it. And so that was Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobes Dumez. Okay, lastly, this is my last nonfiction best book of the year. And it is also my favorite book of the year period alongside Misery, which we already discussed. Because Misery doesn't really fit into exactly a category here. And this one does because it came out this year. This is my personal favorite book of the year, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. I know this is not most of y'all's cup of tea. Like I totally know it. This book is a Russian lit class in a book. And for a lot of people, you're like, you're already out. I totally get it. I happen to love Russian lit. I studied it in college. I miss it. I feel so much affection for Russian lit. I also maybe just miss being in a classroom period. And so this felt like an education. I loved these stories. I loved learning something. And even if you can't get on the Russian lit side train of it, although it would be hard to enjoy this book if you weren't a little bit into or open to learning about Russian lit, what Saunders is teaching us here about storytelling, especially short storytelling, which is the form that he's really, you know, deep diving on. I I mean, I feel like as a writer, I'll like never be the same. I learned so much in this book. Some of it was like subconscious. He's teaching you what the writer is doing as they read. And as a reader, I am realizing like, yes, I do do that as I read. But he's trying to make you understand what the author was doing while also explaining what the typical reader will do and how those two things are working in tandem. I just thought it was so brilliant. Like it makes me want to cry. It was so, so good. (laughs) But like Misery, it's For a very specific type of reader, it is not a universal book that I would recommend to anyone and everyone, but I just beyond loved it. It was just what my brain this year wanted. I wanted to be schooled on Russian Lit. I wanted to read these short stories that he makes you read before he explains what's happening in them. I wanted to hear him talk about the writing process in general, which he does sort of intermittently. I just love this book. Again, will not be for everyone. Do not gift this to anyone because it's so different. You'd have to know that somebody liked something like this before you spent your $20 on it. But it is my last and final and best nonfiction book of the year. Again, it's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. All right, this has been so fun. Thank you for letting me tell you my list repeat myself from books that I have talked about throughout the year. I just appreciate you being here. I want to hear what your best books of the year were. You can find everything that I listed in the show notes, but I want to hear from you the books that you loved. I also want to hear if you want to share it. We talked about at the beginning of like how you rank things, how you decide best books of the year versus favorite books of the year, how you come to your conclusions on making that list, all of these things, any and all book talk, I am welcoming this end of one year and beginning of another. It's just my favorite topic on any day of the year, but especially when all of these superlative lists are going around. So that was mine. I had a great time sharing it with you and I can't wait for us to read Frankenstein together in the end of January. Thanks for listening to Secret Stuff, friends.